if you would, I'd ask you to put your sanctified imagination thinking caps on for a few minutes. Imagine for a moment you joined a church called Fluid Church. Fluid Church had no structure, no organization, and no church officers or leaders either. In fact, it has no physical location where believers regularly assembled, hence the meeting together was rather fluid, flexible, subject to change, and not bound to any one location or time. Fluid Church also has no written or at least clearly communicated set of commitments that lay forth what it means to be a member of this church. And thus, there is no accountability or discipline either. All you have to do is express your verbal or written consent that you want to become a member, then that's basically it. If you or anyone, for that matter, would join Fluid Church, your name would be found on some type of membership role or database you could find online. As far as communication goes, there are certainly emails that go out from week to week, sometimes with some Bible verses, other times with potluck ideas, a different people's commentary on the latest political debates, Pictures of random selfies by members on their cell phones. But at the end of the day, members of Fluid Church have total freedom to worship God whenever they want, wherever they want, however they want, with whomever they want. But to this point, one echoing support of this same type of church mentality, George Barna has been noted for saying, the requirements of Hebrews 10.25 that believers are called to regularly assemble together could be fulfilled, he says, quote, in a worship service or at Starbucks. Others likewise go one step further with their fluid mindset of what it means to be a Christian and have even said, quote, I am not called to attend or join a church. I'm called to be the church. But if fluid church isn't for you or for others, some are encouraged to check out other culturally relevant, seeker-sensitive, market-driven churches that aim to be as accommodating to people's preferences as possible. For example, you could check out a church that's very well-known in California that boasts of having four services all going on simultaneously at the same time. You can go to the traditional service, a rock service, a gospel service, and one with classic hymns and a chorus. If that isn't your cup of tea, you could always get your Western fix by attending a trend that's been going on for about 20-something years of churches called Cowboy Church. The March 11, 2003 edition of USA Today reported on this new approach to religious faith in certain churches. Worship based in the values and mores of the American West. The newspaper headline would read, quote, straight shooting emphasis on Christianity spurs a growing trend. Church named, with no needed irony, Cross Trails. is reported to baptize new believers in an eight-foot circular blue plastic horse trough. Friends, we do baptize people in a horse trough. Because we have to. But we are not a cowboy church. Kathy Lynn Grossman writes in the article, quote, This is cowboy church. Straight shooter. Sinner saved by grace theology throwing a rope out to the lost, the lonely, and those who long for an unvarnished faith. No fancy duds, no politicized preaching, no denominational hair splitting. It's come as you are in spirit. 
Spurs and Stetsons. It's fucking bulls and plumbing Bibles in a dusty arena or dropping a hard one dollar in a boot on the back table after a punchy sermon. End quote. Participants come to church dressed in cowboy gear. The floor of the church is dirt brown sand. Quote, so you can come to church straight from riding or feeding your stock, says Pastor Gary Morgan of the Cowboy Church of Ellis County, south of Dallas. Ten Commandments are reinterpreting cowboy twang. Honor your ma and pa. No telling tales or gossiping. Get yourself to Sunday meeting. No fooling around with another fellow's gal. Except the benediction song is often Roy Rogers' Happy Trails to You. Now the examples of Fluid Church, the Multi-Service California Church, or the Western Feel of Cowboy Church, they illustrate for us a common reality. A common reality in the world we live in today where there is a whole host of approaches of how professing Christians think about worshiping God. A whole range of options offered to professing Christians on how to express your Christianity throughout a given week. So, brothers and sisters, how about us here at CCBC? How would we be described in our expression? or expressing our worship of God? How would God himself characterize our corporate worship each Lord's Day? How would God describe each of our individual witness for Jesus throughout any given week? As we study our sermon passage this morning, we should all be asking ourselves questions like these too. Are our lives as believers giving back to God what is rightly due? No. And are we boldly and faithfully testifying of what God has done, both in history and in our lives today? If you have a copy of God's Word, please open your Bibles to Psalm 66. Psalm 66, if you're using one of the pew Bibles or chair Bibles provided, you can find that on page 275, Psalm 66. This morning, we continue our current sermon series in the Psalms by looking at Psalm 66, which is sandwiched between a set of four Psalms that are known as the Temple Psalms, which begins at Psalm 65 and concludes with Psalm 68. The Temple Psalms are a group of four Psalms, each of which are identified by the double title, a Psalm, a Song. The combination of these words, a Psalm and a Song, indicate the psalmist expressing one's love and honor to God through singing and music, as well as through prayer. And that's what you'll see at the headings of all the temple songs. So if you look down with me at Psalm 66, which we'll read this morning, you'll see in the heading of the psalm, right above it, to the choir master, a song, psalm. Are you looking back at Psalm 65, at the, the heading, same thing. To the choir master, a psalm of David, a song. And then Psalm 67, you see the same thing to the choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm, a song. And then Psalm 68, same thing to the choir master, a psalm of David, a song. As Psalm 65 and 68 are written by David. Psalms 66 and 67 are anonymous. It means we don't know who wrote them. Apparently, these songs were used by Israelites during the main annual feast of Israel, the Feast of Booth, the Feast of Harvest, etc., and other regular times of offerings. And they were used by faithful pilgrims after they had entered into the temple in Jerusalem. 
Therefore, each psalm within the temple psalms contain allusions to the people of God assembling together for worship. In our psalm this morning, we see this reference to the temple. Down with me at verse 13, so you can see how this is a temple psalm. We see the psalmist say in verse 13, I will come into your house. Who's the your? Well, it's speaking of the Lord's house. God's house. Come into the Lord's house with burnt offerings. The house is referring to the dwelling place. The temple that God ordained Solomon and his kingdom to eventually construct. It's the physical earthly place where God uniquely uh, condescended, if you will, and revealed himself and communed with his people Israel. It's where the high priest would offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. It's where worshipers would gather annually, sometimes even monthly and weekly, with their animals for different types of sacrifices according to the rules prescribed by God's Word. If you look down, look at with me at verses 13 and 15, just getting you kind of uh, familiar with the psalm. You'll see some of these sacrifices mentioned. They are important to think about. The psalmist here mentions specifically burnt offerings, which were of fattened animals. That phrase there, fattened animals, throughout the Old Testament, it typically indicated animals that were of health, prosperity. It was the choicest of meat offered back to God on the altar. Anytime you see that kind of shown up, uh, the first fruits or the choicest or the fattest of the meats or the animals, uh, this is the worshiper coming to God, giving his or her best of their best back to God. Amidst all the different types of Offerings ordained under temple worship, under the Old Covenant, burnt offerings were consumed by fire, hence the word burnt. And they were to be carried out for different purposes. One of those purposes were to atone for sin, atone for their disobedience to Yahweh. You can read about that in Leviticus chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. And when these burnt offerings were offered for atonement, it would be a visual symbol right before their eyes of the worshiper being temporarily atoned. The word literally means covered by God's mercy and forgiveness of their sin. And their guilty conscience before God and the reminder of their need to be made right with God led them to offer up sacrifices to God. Sacrifices that were prescribed by God's Word and that were offered to God from a broken and contrite spirit. As we saw from David's Psalm in 51 last week. Uh, the burnt offerings could also be used alongside fulfilling a vow or a promise made to God by the worshiper, along with free will offerings or other feast day or Sabbath day occasions. If you want to learn more about burnt offerings and the background of that, you can look up Leviticus chapter 6, Leviticus chapter 22, Numbers 15, Numbers 28 and 29. These are passages that you're tempted to skip over in your Bible reading, and I'm not letting you off the hook. Leviticus 6. Leviticus 22, Numbers 15, and then Numbers 28, 29. And from our psalm this morning, the psalmist certainly appears to at least be offering these sacrifices for the latter reason. He mentions making promises, making vows to God, whether it's a promise of repentance from some type of sin, or perhaps a renewed zeal of service and devotion to the Lord or maybe a combination of both. Either way, the psalmist is resolved. Psalm 66 is a wonderful psalm, not just for the people of Israel in that day, but it's a psalm that instructs Christians like us today 
to show us what it means to worship God out of the overflow of a humbled and thankful heart, both in song and through praise, as we give testimony to what God has done for us. Last week, Psalm 51, we went to the depths of our sin and our need for a Savior. Uh, this week, we're coming out of the depths and climbing up to the mountaintop of praise to God. Uh, to kind of help you see the breakup of the psalm, it can be broken up in a few different ways. Verses 1 to 12 uh, could be considered the community of faith, the corporate body of worshipers who fear the Lord worshiping together. And then verses 13 to 20, it's more personalized in nature. It's individualized. The personal pronoun I comes up multiple times. Look at me now, starting Psalm 66, starting in verse 1. Shout for joy to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of His name. Give to Him glorious praise. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. All the earth worships you and sings praises to you. They sing praises to your name. Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in His deeds toward the children of man. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. There did we rejoice in Him who rules by His might forever, whose eyes keep watch on the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. Bless our God, O peoples. Let the sound of His praise be heard who has kept our soul among the living and has not let our feet slip. For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. You brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water. Yet you have brought us out to a place of abundance. I will come into your house with burnt offerings. I will perform my vows to you. That which my lips uttered and my mouth promised when I was in trouble. I will offer to you burnt offerings of fattened animals. With the smoke of the sacrifice of rams, I will make an offering of bulls and goats. Come and hear all you who fear God. And I will tell you what He has done for my soul. I cried to Him with my mouth and high praise was on my tongue. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But truly, God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God, because He has not rejected my prayer or removed His steadfast love from me. This is God's Word. If you're taking notes, here's my main idea or summary statement of the sermon. I'll repeat it twice. As Christians, we have compelling reasons to be joyful and vocal about God's work. As Christians, we have compelling reasons to be joyful and vocal about God's work. And you'll see this in the psalm. Joyful and vocal about His work in history, like things that have happened in the past, and joyful and vocal about His work right now in the present. 
Psalm 66 is one psalm that instructs us as the people of God how to do this well. And to help us better understand how Psalm 66 does this, to show us these compelling reasons, how do we respond to God in worship, uh, the outline of my sermon can be broken up into two main headings. Get ready for the few subpoints. Point number one, we should give to God the glory that is rightly due to him. We should give God, give to God the glory that is rightly due to him. Now, if you've grown up in church for any length of time, you have probably heard the word glory thrown around a lot. Glory. Praise be to God. Hallelujah. Then you stop someone in the lobby and say, do you know what that means? Glory. Sometimes as Christians, we don't need to assume we actually know what we're talking about when we say these Bible or churchy kind of words. So what does glory mean? If we are to give God the glory that is rightly due to him, we need to know what glory is. In other words, in understanding what glory is and who God is, then we will have, and only then, will we have compelling reasons to be joyful and vocal about God's work. In verse 2, I want you to notice that glory is one of the themes of this psalm. Verse 2, the psalmist says, Sing the glory of His name. Give to Him glory of praise. The Hebrew word here used for glory is kavod. Kavod, it, it means weight or weightiness. Not speaking about something or someone who ate too much during Christmas and now they weigh a lot on the scale. No, this is speaking about worth, value, something or someone who is of superior and supreme value in our eyes. In the New Testament, the Greek word used for glory is doxa, D-O-X-A, which speaks again of dignity, value, honor, splendor, and worth. If you get online and you are a basketball shoe lover, do we have any out here today? Love, Ian, raise it up. I know you are. There we go. Confession, Cameron. You can find some of the most expensive basketball shoes sold at an auction or other purchasing venues that have ever been sold. One store states that the Nike Air Zoom Kobe Ones, with only 25 pairs made, were priced at an estimated $30,000. You got those shoes? They have a building fund? But then there's the Reebok question. Which are shoes designed by a man in my generation of sports, Allen Iverson, AI. He came out with 246 studded diamonds in his shoe. A leather upper suede overlays, comfortable hexalite cushioning in a translucent outsole. I had to look up all these words. The extravagant Reebok question went on to sell for a staggering, get ready, $65,000 at an auction. And then what completely blows my mind is this finding. The Air Jordan 13s or 13S. I, I don't know what that really means. But Michael Jordan, MJ, wore these shoes in Game 2 of the 1998 NBA Finals and they were auctioned off at, are you ready? 
a staggering $2.2 million. Now think about that for a minute, friends. Sweaty, stinky, articles of clothing on our feet cost 30 65 all the way to $2.2 million. And people have bought them. Why are these shoes so expensive? Why would anyone pay that much money, not for a car, uh, not for college tuition, not for a massive house for a big family, but for basketball shoes of all things? I mean, think about it. It's not because the shoes will actually make you jump higher. It's not because wearing the shoes will magically turn you into an NBA player. No, the shoes are valuable because of who wore them. And more than the shoe itself, it sometimes it's the rarity of how many were made or if they were worn in a special game. And when you combine all this with the prestige and talent and reputation of the one who wore it, when you put these all together, friends, behold, you have something glorious. You have something glorious in the eyes of certain people who really love basketball shoes. The value of the shoes compels the customer who loves those shoes to do whatever it takes to obtain those shoes. But maybe for the vast majority of us, we only had a few raise their hands, basketball shoes aren't your thing. But I can promise you this, something is. Toy? Hobby? Car? House, money, a body image. There is something in each and one of us that we want because we find it glorious. It could be a thing. It could be an object. It could be a place like a piece of land or a vacation spot. Friends, it could even be a person. Someone you've opened up your heart to. They have captivated your heart. They have stolen your attention. They consume your thoughts. They basically rule your life because they rule your heart. Other examples of glory chasers? Think of storm chasers. They find tornadoes glorious in their own way. So much they put their life at risk to film these ferocious storms up close. Think of jewelry stores protecting a diamond ring with thick glass, security guard, security cameras, eyes on the customers. Why? Because of the value of the diamond. Think of video games. People and kids and teenagers and men that need to grow up play video games for hours and hours on end by a person or a group of friends. Why? Because they get wrapped up in a game thinking that game is reality. They want to escape from their boring life and into their fantasy life, learning secret codes, beating certain villains, obtaining certain levels, getting game shark status among their peers. Or think of movie stars, sports stars, or simply a popular person in your life. 
You want to be around them because you want to be like them or you want what they have. A rich network of friends. Everyone knows their name. Everyone wants to go to their house and their parties. Friends, we chase after so many things. People, activities, toys, goals, places. We invest time, money, energy, priorities because we find that something or that someone glorious. We deem it as weighty. We perceive it as most valuable in our life. Friends, the question this morning at 925 D Street in Burling, Arkansas, right now at 1109, we need to answer is this. Do we find God Himself as glorious? Or do we yawn with boredom? Do we actually think there is something or someone better than knowing God Himself? Are our hearts, friends, captivated by His power, His love, His sovereignty, His goodness, His generosity, His faithfulness, His kindness, His patience, and His mercy towards us? Friends, when we study the pages of Holy Scripture, do we find ourselves enthralled? In awe of who God is. In awe of what He has done. Both in history and in our lives today. If you and I don't, may we all humbly but sweetly be reminded of this morning. This kind of glory seeking, glory savoring, glory pursuing, glory prizing of God. Beholding Him as weighty, and valuable and of supreme worth in our lives. Friends, this is what we were created for. We were created by Him, for Him. This is the point of life. To know Him and to enjoy our God. Isn't this what the Westminster Shorter Catechism succinctly says? Man's chief end is to glorify God and what? Enjoy Him forever. The Apostle Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 10.31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So to summarize the essence of glory and why we were created in the first place, one author says this, glory is about radiance and splendor. But glory isn't just an attribute. It exists to be seen and recognized. It's about reputation, esteem, standing, and honor. At its core, glory is about inherent value that's recognizable to others. God created the cosmos, that means the world, to display His glory, His worth, and His value. So now we've got our theological hats on. We took our imagination hats on. We're wrapping our arms around, examining our hearts about glory then how on earth do we give God the glory that is due to Him? Praise God, His Word tells us how that can be done. In verses 1 to 12, we get three ways Israel did this back to God in the psalmist here. So how do we do this? Subpoint number one, we boldly testify. 
of God's greatness by joyfully singing His praises. We boldly testify of God's greatness by joyfully singing His praises. Look at me starting in verse 1 again. Shout for joy to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of His name. Give to Him glorious praise. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. All the earth worship to you and sing praises to you. They sing praises to your name. Here the psalmist begins boldly testifying to the earth at large. Both creation itself from trees, animals, stars, and planets, but by implication, every single human being that God has put on this earth. Every human, the entire human race, is to shout for joy to God, who is our maker, and to make our voices heard that He is God, and He is worthy to be praised. I want you to notice in verse 1 and verse 4, the first audience, the psalmist instructs, the psalmist exhorts, appears to be on a worldwide and global scale. Look at verse 1. Shout for joy to God, all the earth. Not some of the earth, not the western hemisphere, not select people in Arkansas, all the earth. Look at verse 4. All the earth worships you. It's as if the psalmist is envisioning what hasn't happened yet, but one day will be fully realized in the new heavens and the new earth. Listen to that. One day, one day, the whole earth will be filled with joyful worship to the one true God. That day's coming. You getting excited about that, Cole? That day's coming. Brothers and sisters, there is coming a day when Habakkuk 2.14 will be fulfilled. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. A day when sacrifices and worship will be offered to God and it will be offered to God from a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation ransomed by the blood of Christ. We will see Malachi 1.11 finally fulfilled when the Lord of hosts says, For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name, and a pure offering for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Friends, this is exactly what the grand arc of human history is all about. If you read the book of Revelation, don't get intimidated by dragons and beasts and signs and wonders. Be amazed that God's going to fulfill every promise He's ever made. Be amazed that Jesus Christ will receive the full reward for His sufferings. What is heaven singing? about God the Father? What is the choir of heaven singing about God the Son? Revelation 5, starting in verse 9, and they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, 
to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Today, the whole earth might not be visibly worshiping the triune God yet. Today, the whole earth might not be visibly bowing the knee and raising their voices to King Jesus, the Lamb of God who was slain yet. But one day, the earth will. That day's coming. And friends, this is one reason why you and I still have breath and are still on this earth right now. This is one of many reasons why CCBC ultimately exists. As John Piper has rightly said, quote, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship does. In other words, evangelism, sharing the gospel, sending missionaries, planting churches. You know why we do that? Because untold millions and millions and millions of people who are made in God's image do not love, do not serve, do not find God glorious. Why? Because of our sin. Our sin blinds us from His glory. You've got unbelieving kids and siblings and maybe even a spouse and friends you've been praying for for a long time. Why do I see the glory of God revealed in the face of Jesus and they don't? Friends, sin blinds us and Satan double blindfolds us to blind us from seeing the glory of God. That's why we should be a people that are bent on prayer because only God can remove the blindfold. Only God can open the eyes of a spiritually dead person and show Jesus through that spiritually dead sinner how glorious Jesus is. Friends, we are proof in the pudding. We all were once blind. We were all once self-deceived. We all found many things and many people way more glorious than Jesus Christ. And today we can have the experience and the privilege to see him as glorious because God opened our eyes. That's amazing love. That's amazing grace. And that's why CCBC exists. You look on the front of your bulletin, of your worship guide. But we exist to be a pillar of God's truth with a passion for all people to worship the one true God. And how are we going to do that? We can't reach the whole world for Jesus by ourselves, but we can be faithful right where we are. Cycling, preaching, teaching, praying, giving, serving, encouragement, planting churches, sending missionaries. God's vehicle to see Christ's name known among the nations is through the local church. Friends, we were created by God to know Him through His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are saved by God to tell others about the good news of Jesus Christ. One way God's Word instructs us of how we boldly testify to God's greatness is by singing. Did you know that singing is a form of instruction? 
That's why we don't sing fluffy, stuffy songs. We say the same 11 words seven times or the same seven words 11 times. Why? Well, that's like hypnotizing people. Oh, I love that tune. You know what you're singing. No, but it sounds great. Well, you can go get that at the next yoga class or the YMCA or the Boys and Girls Club. But when we come to church, we're going to put our big girl pants on, our big boy pants on, and we're going to sing biblical truth from the bottom of our heart to the top of our lungs because it gives God glory. We want to sing good songs. We want to preach good sermons. We want to be filled with the Bible so that when people come into this church, they don't hear from a man, they hear from God. Singing biblical truth with joyful hearts can shake an entire community. Shake an entire culture. Our culture doesn't even know how to sing. Taylor Swift, please. Just get off the TV, ladies. Our world doesn't know how to sing because they don't know what to sing about. The only one that is glorious enough to take a bunch of fumbling, stumbling, spiritually dry corpse and resurrect them to acquire, to sing His praises, is God Almighty. Oh, friends, may God ignite in our hearts to be a singing church that sings true, rich, biblical songs with joy in our hearts at the top of our lungs. Shout for joy to all the earth. And why not start right here in Barling Arts? Verse 1, He commands the earth. Shout for joy to God. Verse 3, he tells God directly how awesome are your deeds. How awesome are your works. How awesome are your actions. He instructs us to tell God he's powerful. He's strong. He can make the vilest sinner clean. He can make the most antagonistic non-Christian bow to him and cringe in fear to him. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. One of the sweetest things about knowing God and beholding His glory is that He gives us His joy to live for His glory. Jonathan Edwards once said, earthly joys are fragmented beings, but God is the sun. Earthly refreshment is at best a sipping from intermittent springs. God is the ocean. Then in verse 4, He commands us to sing again. Sing praises to Him. Sing praises to His name. And that's what we've done here this morning. And that's what we do every Lord's Day. And that's what we're going to continue doing until the Lord comes back for us. James Montgomery Boyce once said this about singing, quote, from a Christian perspective, singing and worship is not merely to express emotion as if the focus were on us. On the contrary, the focus is on God. And though there may and should be true emotion, this is because of who God is. And because praise is the proper and natural response to Him. In other words, the content of our worship, even by music, should not be our experiences, however intense or powerful, but rather God and God's glory. Brothers and sisters, if you lack joy in God this morning, then ask God to revive your hearts with His joy again. Just tell Him. Joy is God's hope-filled gift to His people. He delights in giving us His joy more than we are willing to ask Him for. 
Friends, we all know that personal and painful experience of trying to put all our joy in earthly refreshments. Remember what Edward said. They're just beans. But they're all derivative. Friends, fellowship, good health, fun, all that, they're derivative. They're gifts from the giver. The real substance of joy comes from knowing God, not worshiping His gifts. Friends, we should seek to know the Lord, who is our chief confidence, our highest gladness, and our greatest praise. God is glorified in our lives when we are most satisfied, joyful, and confident in Him. Friends, pray that we at CCBC will be marked by this kind of humble praise. And that we would not be swept up into emotionalism, but we would pray earnestly that God's truth would penetrate our heart and it would express itself in joy to God. In verses 5-7, to seven, we see another way God instructs us how to give Him glory that is due Him. Look at verses 5 to 7. Some point number two, we boldly testify of what God has done in salvation history. We boldly testify of what God has done in salvation history. Look at me starting in verse 5. The psalmist says, Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds toward the children of man. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. There did we rejoice in him, who rules by his might forever, whose eyes keep watch from the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. In verse 6, the psalmist draws our attention now to this miraculous event, and possibly a set of events, almost like he's putting more ammo in the gun to make his point of how glorious God is. So when exactly, according to verse 6, did God turn the sea, think about that, a massive body of water into dry land? Well, of course, he's speaking of the Exodus. I would encourage you, if you haven't been there in a while, read Exodus chapters 14 and 15. Meditate on the phraseology of dry land. The writers say this over and over again to make a point. This miraculous provision, this amazing guidance of God to guide thousands and thousands of enslaved, bewildered, fearful Israelites through the Red Sea by a very imperfect, stuttering man named Moses. This mind-blowing story is used of God to ignite in our hearts that God uses sinful and fickle people like Moses. He pronounced ten acts of judgment in the form of plagues on the largest empire in the known world at the time. He hardened Pharaoh's heart and the supernatural power to split a sea allowed the Israelites to pass through unscathed, unharmed, while destroying the entire Egyptian army and wipe them off the earth. Then in the second half of verse 6, the psalmist says they passed through the river on foot. Now some commentators think this is only speaking of the Exodus. I think actually if you read your Bible more carefully, he's using a double picture of the Exodus as well as Joshua leading the second generation of Israelites into the promised land. So if you read Joshua chapters 3 and 4, you see the same phraseology here. Here again, God's using an imperfect leader, Joshua, to lead his people into the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, a, plan, a land of blessing and rest where they would be with their God and protected from their enemies. Friends, these passages contain stories in our Bibles 
They've been passed down through the ages, written down, retold, and boldly proclaimed generation after generation to the people of God. All the way down to people like us. Why? Why does Stephanie need to know about the Exodus today? Why does Mark and Miranda need to consider what God did through Joshua with the Israelites going into the Promised Land? Why? Because our joy in God is rooted not in favorable circumstances, but in the faithfulness of God to do what He promised. Our joy in God is not rooted in favorable circumstances or fuzzy feelings. Our joy in God is rooted in God's faithfulness to do what He has promised. You see, the psalmist is taking us way back, way back to where God demonstrated power and might and His faithfulness to His people. And friends, He's doing that to instruct us as well. Friends, He's saying, look at your God and what He has done in the past so that you may have joy and faith right now in the present. Here, he says in verse 6, there we rejoice in Him. Friends, our joy in God is not just in God's faithfulness, but it's also in God's power to rule. Like He did over the Egyptians. Like He did over Pharaoh. Like He did over the Canaanite armies. The same God who sees all and knows all back then, beloved, listen to this, is the same God who sees all and knows all about our lives right now. Look at what he says in verse 7. Who rules by his might forever. That means God was ruling back during the Exodus. He was ruling back during Joshua's day. He's ruling right now and he will rule forever. Whose eyes keep watch on the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. Oh, to my non-Christian friend, this is not a scare tactic from a pastor. This is taking God's word and speaking it to you. God is watching. God is watching you. God is watching you. God is watching every word you speak. Every action you live out. Every thought you meditate in your mind. That's why it's foolish to run from a God or try to hide from a God who sees you all the time. That's why it is a fool's error to make moral judgments on God because that is the height of human error. Do not exalt yourself above God because He will humble you. And he will resist the proud. And He will humble everyone walking in pride. So my fellow brothers and sisters, God's omniscient gaze is one of the anchors for our souls. It's the pillow we rest our faith on. 
Think about it. Are you suffering today? God sees it. Are you discouraged? God sees it. Are you caught between the crossfires of a divisive situation with people you love? God sees it. Are you scared? God sees it. Are you afraid that someone will do something harmful to you? God sees it. Friends, if you've got a tough decision coming up and it's really hard and your mind has been racking, what do I do? What do I do? Friends, do you understand? This is what brings us comfort as Christians. Not only does God see, He already knows the path He's going to lead you down. He knows all the options on the table. He knows the best option on the table. And He has the ability to lead scared, anxious, depressed, discouraged, clueless, children down the right path. Remember this word of wisdom. Trust less in your ability to hear the voice of God and more in His ability to lead. His eyes are on the sparrow. And His eyes are on His children. He knows. Our God keeps watch on the nations. Our God keeps watch on terrorists, abusers, drug lords, rapists, murderers, liars, adulterers, drunkards, thieves, and religious hucksters. He keeps His eyes on the United States of America. He keeps His eyes on the U.S. President. He keeps His eyes on the U.S. military. He keeps His eyes on Fort Smith, Arkansas. He keeps His eyes on our families. He keeps His eyes on our church. He keeps His eyes on our lives. Proverbs 15.3 says, Beloved, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. He can be trusted. Keep your eyes on the one whose eyes see everything. May this beloved drive us to put away our sin. May that fact right there spark in our hearts right now to not hide sin. To live transparent above reproach lives. Live in a glass bowl to the glory of God. Live with the joy of a clear conscience before God and man. Our God is seeing everything and He knows how to lead us. Friends, He has already provided someone greater than Moses, someone greater than Joshua, and something greater than the exodus or entrance into Canaan. He's provided the better Savior in Yeshua, Jesus Christ, who has led us to a place in our wilderness, in our wandering, and He is bringing us home. Friends, the greatest act of judgment the world has ever seen is when God put His innocent Son on the cross for the sins of His people. He saw what they did to His Son. And the Father poured out His wrath on His own Son. And He did that to bear the penalty, the ultimate sacrifice to atone for the sins of His people. And He died. He was buried. And God raised Him from the dead, demonstrating He is the Son of God. 
He is infinitely better than Moses and Joshua. The salvation He provides for us is infinitely better than escaping the Red Sea or the Ammonite army. It is the greatest deliverance from sin, Satan, and the judgment to come. Friend, that is the good news. Jesus Christ has come as our deliverer, our rescuer, our Savior. And guess where Jesus is at today? He's reigning at the right hand of the Father. He rules forever. He keeps watch on the nations. And that's why it is a fool's error to exalt yourself above the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord of glory. The third way in this passage that we learn of how we give God the glory, that is sub-point number three, testifying of God's faithfulness. In the trials He brings to us and how He carries us through them all testifying of God's faithfulness in the trials He brings to us and how He carries us through them all. Look at verses 8-12. to 12. Bless our God, O peoples. Let the sound of His praise be heard who has kept our soul among the living and has not let our feet slip. For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. You brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water. Yet you have brought us out to a place of abundance. The psalmist now is now directing the nation of Israel current attention to what seems like a recent series of events. A recent series of hardships. Circumstances that many of their faith was starting to slip away. They begin to even think, maybe God's done with us. Maybe He's disinterested. Maybe He doesn't care anymore. Some of them even feared that they were knocking on death's door. That's why we read in this section of sinful, disobedient, and evil men. Listen to this. So again, we're about to step up in the theological kind of staircase of... Listen. God permitted and ordained. God permitted and ordained that evil, sinful, disobedient men carry out their sinful purposes to fulfill God's purpose. He says in verse 11, did you see that in your Bibles? You brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden on our backs. Verse 12, you let Men ride over our heads. And yet at the same time, the psalmist recognizes that the same God who brings hard times into our lives is the same God who can hold us fast through all of them. Verse 9 speaks of God keeping their souls, not letting their feet slip. Verse 12, yet you have brought us out to a place of abundance. Friends, this speaks of God preserving their life and protecting their faith through the trials and the hard circumstances that were like suffocating heat and fire, that were like drowning fears of deep waters. It was God who brought them to it, and it was God who brought them through it to a better place as a result of walking through them. We're not told exactly what those trials are. We're not told exactly who the evil men were. All we're told is that God used sinful people to do His own people harm. And God used them for His own glory 
and his people's good in the end. That phraseology there in verse 10, I want you to hang your hat on that for a while. Think about this this week. God tested his people, tried them as silver is tried. And that same image is used throughout the Old and New Testament. For example, come back tonight as our brother Tom will preach from First First Peter 4. We will hear again what we've heard from First Peter 1. Fiery trials that we shouldn't be surprised by. When God brings them into our life, they are to purify, to refine our faith. So come back tonight to learn more about that. This is just another way of saying God will use whatever He wants, whenever He wants, with whomever He wants, without God sending Himself to purge us of our self-reliance, to purge us of our pride, purge us of our sin, to create within us and make pure and lovely and precious faith in Him. Is there any of you tempted this morning to walk away from the Lord? Have you been contemplating what it would be like to no longer do this church thing? Maybe in your life you would say you're drifting. You're struggling. You're backsliding. Maybe if you're really honest, you would just say, Pastor, I've been in rebellion. Sinning with a high hand. Perhaps you're in a spiritually dry season. Maybe even worse, you've been in a dark night of the soul. And you're wondering, where is God? What is God doing? And when or if will He ever change my heart or my circumstances for good? Friends, no matter where we are at in our lives this morning, remember this. God is in control. He is the potter. We are the cloud. He determines how hot the fire is as He's refining, purifying for faith. Joel Beakey once said, God does nothing without a purpose. God does nothing without a purpose. Who needs to hear that this morning? Ephesians 1.11, In Him we have attained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. Romans 8.28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. 1 Peter 4.19, that Tom will read tonight, therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. Friends, God does nothing in our life without a purpose. Friends, that means whatever He does in our life, whatever He permits, is ultimately for our good. Listen to this. Whatever He chooses not to give us, it's because we don't need it. How has God tested your faith in the past? How is God testing your faith right now? In what ways has God already shown you His good purposes for the trials in which you in? To remind us of our cross-carrying life, from our Lord, J.I. Packer once said, sooner or later, God's guidance brings us out of darkness into light. will also bring us out of light in darkness. It is part of the way of the cross. Jesus said in Luke 9, 23, and He said to all, if anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow Me. Father, whatever, whatever path that God has set for us, whatever He ordained for our lives, 
Friends, if God is with us, it's the path worth traveling down. He can be true. Well, at the beginning of the sermon, I asked the question, how do we boldly and testify or faithfully testify to what God's done, both in history and in our lives today? Well, in verses 1 to 12, it's all been on the corporate nature of what God has done. Testifying to the earth that He deserves our highest praise. Testifying to Israel what He's done in the past and in the present. And then the psalmist gets very personal as we land the plane. Which leads to point number two. We should worship God with resolve and tell others of His work in our life. We should worship God with resolve and tell others of His work in our life. In verses 13 to 15, in which we already looked at earlier, the psalmist appears before God, worshiping, offering sacrifices, sacrifices that reveal a resolve or a renewed commitment to testify to what God has done in his life. Apparently the psalmist recounts a specific time he prayed to God fervently and desperately, so much that he made a promise to God, I'll serve you all the more, Lord. But it appears that he prayed to God to help him, to sustain him. To show mercy to it. A really hard situation. Then in verses 16 to 20, he wants everybody, he's inviting everyone who fears the Lord to listen. He says in verse 16, Come and hear all you who fear God, and I will tell you what he has done for my soul. Verse 17, I cried to him with my mouth, and high praise was on my tongue. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But truly God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God because he has not rejected my prayer or removed his steadfast love from me. In verse 16, he calls on everyone who fears God to join in and listen to what he wants to testify about God. In other words, he's like saying this to our Kansan context. Hey, y'all, God's done something good in me. He's done something good through me. He's done something good for me. And I can't keep it to myself. Then in verses 17 to 19, he just gives us the flyover spark notes. He doesn't give us all the details. Thanks, Mr. Psalmist. But he says in verse 17, he cried out to God. He cried out to God. And he was praising God even in his crying. Oh, friends, desperate prayers even with weak faith, is still an act of worship to God. Oh man, desperate prayers, even with weak faith, is still an act of worship to God. Isn't that good news? God does not judge us on the strength of our faith. That's that hocus-pocus prosperity gospel nonsense. God judges us not on the strength of our faith, but on the object of our faith. Our faith rests not in us, but in Him. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make straight your path. That's what the psalmist did. I'm going to lean on the everlasting arms. Verse 18, the psalmist recognizes that if his heart was pursuing sin, and he had no regard for God's glory and God's word. The Lord would not have listened to his prayers. George Swinnick once said, sin is a hindrance to prayer. The smallest sin, loved and like, will hinder the course of prayer. Friends, before we pray and ask God for things in our life, you know what one prayer we need to adopt really quick, fast, and hurry if we're not? 
Lord, search my heart and know me. Uproot in me anything that's displeasing to you. You know why that's an important prayer? God will never answer the prayers of His people if they're making prayer requests to Him with sinful motives in their heart. You can't trick it. And see, one of the greatest acts of judgment God could ever pronounce on a person or a people is He gives them everything their sinful heart wants. You want a good Heavenly Father that tells you no. You want a good Heavenly Father that says, not now, but wait. And that's the Heavenly Father we worship this morning. And we should ask God to uproot any sinful motives in our hearts when we're going to Him in prayer. God's not going to be mocked. He will not listen to the prayers of someone who comes to Him in preaching. Verse 19, the psalmist rejoices that by the grace of God, restraining him from pursuing sin, the Lord not giving up on him, the Lord showed His faithfulness. He answered his prayer. Then verse 20, he boasts in the steadfast love of the Lord. Once again, God showing himself faithful, being steadfast, and realizing the Lord will never leave him nor forsake him. Brothers and sisters, we too should tell our stories of God's faithfulness to us. Here's your homework this week for those of you who just like, Pastor, just tell me what to do. Well, giving you a lot to think about. Here's the so what part of the sermon. Take time. Pause. To reflect. Journal. Think. Of what God has done for you. How good He's been. How faithful He's been. How powerful He's been. How patient He's been. How generous He's been to you. And as you journal those things, set up a coffee with a brother and sister in Christ. Have people over at the house. You know what I do? Let me just give you a little Pastor Blake secret. When my heart's dull, because it gets dull every week, I'm a sinner saved by grace, just like you. You know what I do? I get free edification when I go, hey, Julie, tell me what the Lord's been teaching you this past week. I just need to be edified. In other words, I want to hear what God's doing in your life. It builds me up. And friends, the same is true for all of us. We get so narrowed focused on our little life, and because we feel bad or we don't see God's hand moving in Exodus-like ways, doesn't mean it's not. That's why we need to tell each other stories. Not made-up stories. Not flattery and not things that are not really true. But tell one another what God has done. Friends, if we're saved by Jesus Christ, we have a story to tell. Stories of how we were converted. Stories of how He provided for our need. Stories of how He stopped us in our tracks from making really bad decisions. Stories of how He's redirected our paths and led us to better places with better people. Stories just like the disciples could tell. Stories of seeing Jesus on powerful display delivering people from demons like Mark 5 earlier. Stories of Jesus preaching and His Word thundering in people's souls. Friends, the disciples even saw Jesus do something that would have reminded them of the Exodus. And they were in a boat at sea. storm came. And they were scared and afraid. The one in the boat told the lightning, the wind, and the waves what to do. That's our Jesus. Our Jesus held the earth 
what to do. Jesus went to the cross. He had sinful men put Him to death, but His Father's eye was on His Son. His Father was fulfilling a purpose in a dark hour that would be for our eternal benefit. Friends, what do we do when our hearts are dull and we don't see God as glorious? We study. We study the Word and ask God to show us wonderful things in His Word. We pray. Keep me desperate on You, Lord. Show me Your glory. Open my eyes to Your work and what You're doing in the world. We regularly gather with the church to sing His praises and pray together as a family. We listen to what God is doing in each other's lives as we remind one another that God is always faithful. As we conclude, friends, three and a half years ago, this church began because Jesus willed it happen. This church was born in one of the most chaotic, bizarre, and wild years our countries have seen. And those of you who founded the church, by God's grace, you know exactly what else happened in 2020. That doesn't excuse dark, demonic, evil, sinful men doing really bad and twisted things to God's church in God's name. But this church began on September 20th, 2020. Hear it now, because Jesus willed it happen. It was not on our radar or playbook, but it was God's. Praise be to God that He works everything for good for those who love Him to those who are called according to His purpose. And friends, if you're visiting with us this morning and you're going, you know what? I don't know what's happened, but I like what's going on now. Well, come to the membership classes on Wednesday. If you're interested in joining this journey with us, we'd love to get to know what God's doing in your life. You talk to me at the door, draw a welcome card, come to the membership classes, linger, hang out with the members. We want to tell you what God has done for our souls. What God has done even in our church since it first began. Friends, at the end of the day, none of us should receive the ultimate honor, glory, and praise for any good in our life. Because the best thing about us is God's work in us. The best thing about us is not what we have done for God, but what God is doing in Christ by using us for His name. As Paul Washer has said, there are no great men or women of God in the Scriptures or in church history, but only weak, sinful, faithless men and women of a great and merciful God. So friends, what is your testimony? What has God been doing in your life for you to go and tell? What has God been doing in the life of our own congregation that we can go and tell others? Friends, whenever we sing, whenever we tell others about our lives, give God all the glory. All glory be to Christ. And when you fear, your faith might fail. He will hold you fast.